Hey, welcome to the RSP cast. I am Matt Waldman and joining me for the show today, we're going to revamp the scout talk or bring it back and Russ Landy, CFL scout, former NFL scout, and just someone I have an absolute just ball getting a chance to chop it up with Russ. Welcome back. Hey, man. Thanks a ton for having me back. So excited to get started on this, especially in a year where there's no CFL season. Yeah. So I got to yeah. have something to focus on. I got to be able to talk a little football outside of my normal uh, watching film. So I'm so excited. Yeah, well, so am I. This is going to be great, you know, and 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 we did this. We did the series last year. So if you're new to the RSP cast, you know, what Russ and I often talk about are a variety of issues going on in football in terms of college and the NFL, sometimes maybe a little high school talk, depending on what goes on there. And and really from the perspective of scouting and development of players and what the nature of, you know, talent is. And then we and maybe at the end of the show, we'll talk about some players that we've been looking at who've caught our eyes and, and give you kind of an a look ahead of some players you should be watching on Saturdays. So, you know, to start this one off, one of the things that was interesting to us is just, you know, talking a good bit about quarterbacks. You know, one of the things that Russ has always been known for is his ability to spot quarterbacks who weren't just first day guys. You know, I, I remember when I first started up and reading about Russ's work over at GM Jr. and then also at the Sporting News, and knowing that he was really one of the prominent and maybe one of the only guys who talked about Tom Brady as a starter talent, you know. And then, and then also, and I think equally impressive, um, though though maybe less talked about was Mark Bolger, who I also think was a, was an excellent talent. So Russ certainly has an eye for the position, and we have a lot of fun getting a chance to to talk about quarterbacks. So. You know, one of the things I'd love to just ask you is we've got a lot of quarterbacks who are in years two, three, and four. And before we get to some rookies, who are some guys that you're looking at and you're going, I think that now that the NFL has gotten some tape on these guys, they, you know, these guys haven't been able to give an answer to what the NFL opponents have posed to them. Well, you know, I think it's really the two guys to me that jump out are Wentz and Goff. And, and with Goff, it really seems to be every other week, you think. Because some weeks you watch him play and you say, oh, this is the guy we expected, a, a guy who was athletic, who could make throws on the move, who was smart, who didn't make mistakes. And the next week they score three points and their whole offense gets completely bogged down. And you think, what is going on with this Goff guy? Um, both of these guys, I think what's interesting is they're very different quarterbacks in terms of their fundamentals and the way they throw the ball. But their inconsistency, if you just look back this past week when Philly played Dallas on Sunday night, there were stretches, a few series where Wentz looked like a front-end quarterback. And there were other times where he looked like a deer in headlights. He didn't know where he was going with the ball. He tended to hold it too long. And when he did throw it, he didn't throw it confidently. He almost threw the ball like he was trying to control it with a little string on the back of it to make sure it went to the right place. And the ball would sort of fishtail and dive before it got to his receiver's. Wentz, to me, is one of the ultimate guys that it's so hard to figure out what the deal is. Because I'm sure part of it is coaching, but I'm sure part of it is also this kid trying to figure out what is it the NFL teams are trying to take away from him and what is it that NFL teams have figured out about this kid to make him work harder to be productive. Yeah, let's break this down a little more because this is a, these are a, it's a fun subject with these two players. Um, and it's fascinating because the third guy in that draft conversation now is Dak Prescott. 
and and Dallas is just absolutely tanked without him. Um, so, but we'll go back to golf first because watching that Miami game, it it was pretty clear that what Miami decided to do was let's just overload the box with one extra player to to whatever the Rams had, and let's force golf to account for who the lone defender is that's going to be on block so that he knows when to get rid of the ball and where he needs to go with it. And Goff couldn't do that. And then other other plays, when he did know whether to do that, Cam Akers, the rookie, couldn't handle it. Or or the tight end Everett, who's really, you know, a, you know, a, wide, a big wide receiver, couldn't handle his assignment either against a defensive end or an outside linebacker. So... There were all sorts of issues with that, but there's a root thing that I just wonder what you, your thoughts are about this because I look at Sean McVay and there's a lot more, you know, coaches get a lot of criticism and, and certainly everyone's subject to criticism in the NFL when it comes to the, with the nature of this beast. But I look at Sean McVay and he's obviously a very smart coach. There's a lot to talk about, you know, at least from a broadcast casual fan point of view, you know, the parlor trick of being able to remember every, you know, every play yeah. that he's ever seen. And I'm like, Ooh, you know, but the, the thing for me is he certainly did a great job getting the Rams up to speed very quickly. And some of the things he did, I think they were great. You know I mean? Using an offense where everything looks the same and then they run a lot of different things out of the same looks, you, you know, really relying on that outside zone. And then, there's much talk about him being in the headset of Jared Goff. And I used to kind of look at that and say, look, Jared Goff's not a puppet, okay? I understand that people want to say that he is and that, you know, Sean McVay's, you know, being able to point out some things late in the pre-snap process now that will help Goff. And I'm sure that did help Goff, you know, but it doesn't change that Goff still has to move around the pocket and still have to throw the ball and still have to make decisions post-snap. That you know, but the problem is, is now I'm watching this as we go, and we they got to the Super Bowl. Sean McVay didn't have any updated game plan for the fact, you know, that he was facing a chess master in Bill Belichick. He ran basically came in with the same basic game plan that he's had since the Lions foiled him, like in week 13 of that season, and every team since that had a decent enough defense could say. Oh, you like to throw screen passes in a variety of ways? We're gonna we're gonna put an end to that. Oh, you like to run outside zone? We're gonna start putting an end to that too, and and really commit to that. And he didn't change. And it took him till like week nine or week ten. I don't know what week it was. Like past the midpoint of the season, where teams were playing a front that you don't see in the NFL, and they're literally playing a front to stop the outside zone that you normally don't see. And he's still running outside zone. He's not running any gap plays until the midpoint of the the Steelers game. Well into the season, that's when he switches to incorporate some caps. So I'm like, that was really slow. Then I watch him. I'm still watching him like every week. And every week I'm like, I feel like I'm watching like that SNL skit where the, Christopher Walken's in there talking about they need more cowbell for the Blue Oyster Cult song. Because it's like... He's like, let me try this screen. I bet you won't figure that one out. Let's try this screen. I bet you won't figure that one out. Oh, you know, tries five screens. They get foiled by the Bills. And then he gets one right. And so what he thinks is, let me, let's go to another screenplay right after that. It's yep. like, and it almost looks like he's sort of sometimes, so almost sort of like, what can I try? Yes. Like he almost doesn't seem to have sort of, I'm sure he has a plan as every team does. They have their 15 at the beginning and 
15 at the second half, and that's their plan. But it almost looks sometimes like he's like, well, what? let's just try something. Like it's not even a structured idea plan. And I know that's not the case because Sean is a smart guy, and I know how hard he works to be prepared. But because of almost sort of a, a lack of flow in their offense and a lack of consistency, it sort of makes you wonder if sometimes they're just literally saying, you know what, nothing's worked here. We're just going to try a random play stuck in the middle of this. And it just seems so odd to me. Yeah, and that's the thing that's weird. So you put that together, and then you add to the fact that Miami was like, all right, we're just going to we're gonna blitz them out of their own stadium. And by the time they figured it out, it was 28-7. And you're looking at this, and I, and I wonder if McVay and the way that he's kind of stuck to what he's done, like he's like, you know, there's a point of being persistent to the point of being stubborn. And I think that he's kind of crossed that line in a couple of areas. We all do at some point. So I think he's had that in a couple of areas. But then you look at this whole thing that I guess what I want to ask you in addition to that is, all right, there's this notion that Goff's a puppet and, you know, and, and Sean McVay's the puppet master, which, I you know, I'm not totally there. But it is interesting to me, did Sean McVay's headset usage of with golf when it comes to early on to get help him get up to speed as a little bit of a cheat code a little extra boost has that enabled golf in a negative way so now that when miami decides yeah we're gonna load the box up and and come at you that golf maybe isn't as quite as prepared as maybe he would have been if he had to do this a little bit differently well i mean I'm sure there's been an effect, but I would also say, let's remember that at 15 seconds, they, they, you can't talk anymore. Right. So, so it doesn't matter what he sees. Once the NFL guy hits that button and the voice of McVeigh goes away, there still is that spot where Goff has to do it on his own. And I think what teams have learned over the last 10 years, it's not just Goff and McVeigh against any offense that has proven to be successful. Teams wait as late as they can. Yeah. Because you don't want to give away early where you're going because then they have a chance to communicate that. Yeah. I mean, I can remember, and I'm sure you can, even though this seems like 20 years ago now, when Peyton Manning was with the Colts and he would get up there and he'd start making checks and the middle linebacker would start then checking back at him and he'd then go to a second set of audibles yeah. because they've been switching. Well, teams don't give that option anymore. The defense waits until the last eight or nine seconds now if they can to get their defense adjusted. And I think that's part of what's made it tougher. And I think also part of it, and what hasn't really been talked about, is maybe Goff is not as good as people thought he was. I think people have realized, hey, there are certain things Goff does well. He may not adjust in-game to things he's not prepared for, like other quarterbacks do. Tom Brady has always been one of the rare guys, along with Drew Brees, that if you change things mid-game, yeah, he may struggle for a series or two, but eventually he gets his head wrapped around it and he starts adjusting and making the quick throws or maybe holding on to it longer, whatever it takes to deal with that defensive change. Whereas Goff has not really shown me that over the last year and a half. Yeah. And defensive coordinators, they don't they're not there just for the hell of it. They're not they're <laughs> not there just to have fun. These guys spend a lot of time, especially now with analytics, it's a lot easier. They don't have to go in and plug in where guys are lined up. All that data is in their system on Monday morning from PFF or whichever service they use, they have the printouts Monday morning when they start looking at the next opponent and they can say, hey, the Rams in the last 14 games, it's no longer even three games like it used to be because that data is there right in front of you from every game of every season. You can literally pull out exactly what the Rams do 
what they do like to do from certain sets, certain alignments. And when I say sets, I'm not talking about whether it's one running back and two tight ends. I'm talking about they may know based on the space between the tight end and the tackle. And they can get down to the real nitty-gritty. Yeah. They can literally figure out exactly where Goff struggles, where he doesn't, adjust their defense accordingly, and that makes life harder for McVay. Yeah. Because you're, it's balancing the play calling to what your quarterback's strengths are, and not only his strengths, but the whole offense, to go against what the defense is giving you. Yeah. Because you can't force yourself to do something the defense is giving you. It isn't going to work all the time. Because these aren't just Joe 11 guys off the street. These are professional athletes. They're generally going to do their job and be in the right position. So if you call your play no matter what, without any account of what the defense is doing, you're going to get screwed. So I think it's a combination between you'd like to see a little bit more creativity from McVay going against some of his habits. And I think also some of it comes down to God. He's got to, better, got to get better at making adjustments when things change late and when guys do get in his face. How does he handle it? Can he check the protection, squeeze inside so at least gets an extra half a second to make a decision and get the ball out quickly? Yeah, I think those are great points. And certainly for the past couple of years, there's definitely been a lot of talk. And you see from the data that he hasn't been good against pressure. What's interesting is that when you watch him from the college game, when pressure arrived, the physical movements from pressure were fantastic. Like the ability to avoid the pressure in tight quarters and stand in there and throw the ball. He's tough enough. He certainly understands the techniques to avoid pressure. But one of the things that seems to be missing from his game, say like in contrast to a guy like Lamar Jackson, who has his own set of issues, but one of his strengths in the pocket is that he'll know that the Steelers are blitzing him off of a side. Like this week, there was a, there was a, a nickel blitz, I believe, in the red zone that was coming from his right side. And you could, when you look at the replay of the, the touchdown pass he threw to Miles Boykin, you, he does not once look to the edge before the snap. And you can tell what he's thinking is, don't look there. I know he's coming. I know he's coming. Don't look. Don't look. Okay. I know he's going to come. And just anticipate and, and set that up. Goff isn't that guy. Goff doesn't, Goff, if he, if it's not, if he doesn't see it, he really, if he's not looking at it, he doesn't see it. And so that's, I think that's one of the issues with him is that, you know, if the pressure is in his face and he knows it's coming, he has a plan. But if, you know, but he doesn't always know it's coming. And I well, think that's, that's the whole thing is, it, and it's not always in his face, see it, it's at the line, can he anticipate it? Yes. Because even if he can see it, if he didn't anticipate it, he may not have made the correct protection call or adjusted yep. the routes and then he's screwed. Yes. Certain guys have a great ability, even if they're not physically good at it, like Philip Rivers physically can't move out of the way of probably a turtle yeah. that's coming to sack him, but he knows when it's coming. Yeah. So it's coming out, even if he has to throw it and hit a fan in the head. Yeah. He's going to get rid of the ball to avoid the sack. Goff, it's an issue. And again, it, it also raises the question of, because in, in the last 10 years, I think so much has been made of it's the coaching, it's the coaching, it's the coaching that does it. You still have to have the player who's talented. Yeah. You can't, a great coach can't win with a terrible quarterback. Yeah. You have to have some talent. And I think you're sort of saying, and I'm not saying Goff is terrible, but I'm just saying there are things you can't coach to improve. Certain guys have limitations. And yeah. it looks like one of Goff's limitations is he may not have a great vision for what is going on right before the snap in that 10 seconds to make that adjustment and then react accordingly. Yeah. And that's the difference between good and great. 
you know, yes. and uh, or borderline great at least, because Philip Rivers maybe was never a great quarterback to the pantheon yes. of some guys, but he was borderline great at times. Yeah, exactly. And and I would agree with you. I think that it's a great way to decipher it. There are a lot of good ones. Andy Dalton's been a good quarterback at many points during his career. They went to the playoffs five or six years in a row, but he never took it to the next level. I think his was more physical limitations than not being yeah. able to anticipate. But yeah, there's a big difference there. When I look at Goff and I look at McVay, I constantly wonder, is Goff going to get better? Because at this point in his career, you wonder, have yeah. we reached that point where it isn't going to change? Yeah, and that's that's a great point. And then, you know, we go head over to Wentz, speaking of guys who have the physical talent that you're looking for and who, you know, I've kind of used the, I kind of made the joke the other day watching him just get beat up by the Cowboys. I'm on Twitter and I made some videos where, if you've seen the movie Million Dollar Baby, there's a scene, there's a there's a quote about something to the point of, you know, um, some people say that a fighter, all he needs is heart. But I, but if you ask Frankie, he'd tell you that give me a fighter who's all heart and I'll show you a guy who's about to take a beating. And you look at Carson Wentz and his game is all heart. But when you look at him in the pocket, you know, he has footwork issues. He's always had footwork issues. He's one of those guys that, you know, you ask him to take more than a three-step drop or to m hitch and move or slide, and his feet are just not coordinated. And it's either he hasn't worked on the game as much as he needed to, and he did over the summer to work on his drops. Um, but it, it's one of those things that he just looks awkward when he moves. So what ends up happening is that he's inaccurate in the timing passing game, and they... And the teams figured that out late season one, early season two. And then early season two, you know, the, the Eagles clearly said, you know what, let's scrap this drop back game. We know you came in from a West Coast offense where you did drops at North Dakota State, but this isn't working here. So let's put you in pistol. Let's put you in shotgun. Let's let you have quick drop setups and throw the ball, get rid of the ball. You're very accurate between the ranges of about 5 to 30 yards where you don't have to move your feet or do anything with your feet special, you know, to be able to hit these. And the offense was dramatically successful. And then even his accuracy data was very good, even in the vertical game. But a lot of that was because the vertical game, if you looked at certain ranges, over 45 yards, he was really bad. But like within 40 to 45 yards, he was very good. But also you, some of that was inflated too by the fact that when he scrambled, he could play that playground football where it was like, yeah, hide by the trash can, get behind the defense. Yeah, exactly, I'll right? move around. You, they'll forget about you. And you can just stand there and play center field and catch the football and it'll be pinpoint accurate, you know, rather than a timing route. So here we are now and I'm watching this game and Cowboys defense is not, hasn't been good due to injuries at all. Nope. And, and then you have... Then you have the fact that, yes, Philadelphia has had a ton of injuries themselves, but a lot of this still is on Wentz. It's like he can, there's not a situation that he won't, it's like he won't throw the ball away as, as much as he should. He'll, he doesn't realize when he should bail and not just stand in there. He's like tough to a fault, which is like endearing to the Philadelphia fans because that's the kind of guy you want is a never say die, never, and sometimes it works out. But it also leads to injuries and inaccuracies and horrible decisions like the one where he rolls out to his left in that game and everyone's to the right and and he and he's looking there and he should just throw it away because there's two unblocked men who are in the flat coming at him. 
And instead of throwing it away, he's motioning for his receivers as he gets hit and kisses the freight train. And it's like one of those situations, you look at that and it's just like, when, when, how are you going to change that? Because the footwork isn't changing. No, and you also wonder, is the can the mentality be changed? Because this is probably who he's been since he was seven years old and he got the football and started playing quarterback. Yeah. Is you stay in the pocket, you wait, and if it requires you getting your head knocked off, you stay in there and you make the throw. And you don't worry about where your feet are. You don't worry about any of that because people are your offensive line, they're not as talented as you when you're growing up. And you're just good enough. And you can make these plays, whether you're standing sideways, wherever your feet are pointed, you're so good. How do you break that habit? And it reminds me, now they're very different players, but it reminds me a lot of when I used to watch Jay Cutler in that Jay yes. could not throw the ball away. Yeah, He was so competitive. And there's a great trait. You want your quarterback to be competitive, but Jay would never throw it away. He would force the ball. And I think that was something that was ingrained in him playing on a tiny high school, going to Vanderbilt where they were the worst team in the SEC, and he had to carry him on his back where he always felt he had to be the guy. And when you get to the NFL, no matter how much a coach tells you, a lot of your habits are ingrained. You're not going to break them. And I think part of that with Wentz is what's going on is he's always been so good. And if you look at it, even though North Dakota State has improved, he was still a man amongst boys there. Yeah. Not many of the players he went against were going to the NFL. So he could get away with not doing things right in the pocket, technically, and still look like a star. And when you watch him now, it just seems like sometimes – He's in slow motion while everything else is going at full speed around. And by the time he makes that decision, and it's not that his brain is going slow motion, just physically he's going slow motion. By the time the ball is out, it's too late. He misses the thrower. His feet are in the wrong position. It's very frustrating because the games he's done things well, you literally look at it and say, wow, this guy has the chance to be special. Yeah. But the problem is it's so inconsistent. And especially – once the injuries started showing up, it's constantly a thing where you wonder if those off-seasons spent rehabbing and getting himself to be in the best shape possible to stay healthy have almost contributed to his not developing as a passer because he's spending so much time doing the rehab and getting in the best shape of his life that maybe he doesn't have all those other hours in the day to sit there and do the little things that he has to do to get better as a quarterback in terms of footwork proficiency mechanics and all of those traits yeah and it's those de- tiniest details that separate the great players i mean again we just spent you know 15 minutes talking about jared goff and it comes down to probably the those 15 seconds before the snap and the five seconds or really the two seconds not even two really the one second after the snap that that period of time what he can decipher and how he can disguise it and manipulate it and 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 react to it i mean that small little window and we're talking about that's the difference between good and very good or great and with yep. carson Wentz, the same thing it's how he moves his feet it's how he reads the field you know and, and think about it and I'm, I'm sure you've heard the same thing but so many coaches have told me that in the nfl somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of the time the quarterback before the ball is snapped knows where he's going with the ball yeah. As long as the coverage is what he thinks it is when he gets it, it's out. Well, if that's the case, then it shouldn't be this complex to understand. So it shows you that you're not getting everything in your pre-set reads. If you're not knowing where it's going and getting it there consistently, there's issues that are arising, whether it's 
footwork to be able to do it correctly in terms of accuracy, or it's the read being inconsistent. All of those things are tied into knowing what's going on and being able to set up and get rid of the ball quickly and efficiently time in and time again. Yeah, and it is those consistent plays because we see plenty of guys who make wild plays as rookies, and they get away with that because defenses, again, they haven't, they don't know what his strengths and weaknesses are, so there's, there's, they're a little more open to what every possibility is, and they're not dictating as much. So you see guys show off their, their talents, and then it's just like, oh, you know, it's like the guy, it's like you see those funny fight, fight videos where like there's the guy who's warming up before the fight and he's doing all these fancy flips and kicks and doing all these little katas that he does that look super impressive, like, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. And then he walks over, you know, then the bell rings and the ref, you know, parts company and they both walk to each other and the other guy just throws one punch and knocks the yep, dude out. and it's over. Yeah, <laughs> and that's basically what these quarterbacks do from season one to season two. Well, Minshew may be the perfect example. I mean, everybody was so excited. Oh, he was missed. He's this elite starter. He's going to be really good this year. And teams looked at it and said, yeah, there's a lot to like because he's mentally, he's a strong player. He understands right. what's going on. And everything. But I think after seeing him last year, I think teams was, yeah, he may be good mentally, but physically he can't do a lot of things you're going to ask him to do. Yeah. So we're not going to give him these big spaces to throw in on the short and intermediate routes. If he's going to beat us, he's going to have to beat us with great throws because we're going to pack it. We're going to make him go outside the numbers over the top. Yeah. And we're going to make him do it quickly. Yeah. And clearly, aside from the fact that he's been playing with a broken thumb, it looks like, he has not been nearly as consistent this year. And the same things happen with a lot of quarterbacks. And one of the things I was always told when I worked in the league is that first year, everything is guesswork from coordinators because you're basically in a game of two of data when you go against it. Well, when that second year rolls around, they have 16 games of data. Yeah. And they've plugged it all in, and they've identified, hey, when he has to throw to the right, here's where he's good. When he has to throw to the left, here's where he's good. And when we do these types of pressures, he, su he sucks. When we do this, he's great. Well, most coaches will tell you, well, we're going to eliminate allowing him to do anything he's good at. And the good ones become good at what they were bad at. Yes. The ones that don't become quality starters are the ones that can never become good enough in the areas that they were not good and Sam Bradford's another example, aside from the fact that he got broken every other season. His first year he played well. Teams identified that he was much better on the quick hitting throws. Anytime he had to put it over and drop it in, there were issues. Well, they started packing things closer, and he was not nearly as effective fitting balls into tighter windows as he had been early. And it's not to knock Sam. Every quarterback has his strengths and weaknesses. But I think he was hindered by the fact they identified a weakness, and in what normally might have been a chance to get better year by year. For him, it was really every other or third year because he was getting broken so often, he didn't really get the opportunity to get into a field to improve in those areas. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's one of those, it's an interesting thing because it lends to the it lends to the notion that this is why NFL teams really look for a certain prototype in terms of physical skills to throw the football. Because with Gardner Minshew, it's like we're gonna we're going to say, you know, the simple way of what you just said is we're going to make you be Matt Stafford, you know, and Matt Stafford's not a great quarterback, but, you know, he's a very good one. And, and he can physically do everything. Exactly. Consistently, that's a whole nother story. Right, right. <laughs> but, they, but they're going to say, all right, well, we know you can do what Gardner Minshew does. This is what Gardner Minshew does well. 
So what we don't think you do well is we we don't think you have the arm to make the throws that a guy like Stafford can. So let's see what happens here. And then what happens as a result of that is that then takes us to another subject, I would say, is that let's take a look at a guy. We talk about guys like Deshaun Watson or Lamar Jackson, and you look at them and certainly these guys don't have Matt Stafford arms. They no. they cannot throw to the perimeter on timing routes and do it with velocity. Now they have the distance to be able to throw the ball and they can be very accurate with touch passes that lead guys down the field. And they also have the element that Minshew doesn't have, which is their legs to be able to blow the field wide open, either as scramblers or just straight up running through the defense. I mean, you watch Lamar Jackson on a touchdown. was called back against the Steelers, the best defense in the league probably this year. And he literally beats a linebacker, um, beats two linebacker angles, a safety angle, and a cornerback angle to score in the fourth quarter on a play where he was grabbed in the backfield and probably would have been sacked if he were Gardner Minshew. Um, you know, but at the no same question. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, what you wonder is, you know, this team avoided throwing letting him have asking him to throw Matthew Stafford, you know, deep comebacks, deep outs, those types of um throws those types of high-velocity timing throws, and he can't do that. It's just not his game. But, you know, and you're and to me, like a guy like Miles Boykin's being wasted there. Like that guy, if he were in Atlanta, he would be just fine. I think he would be he would be just fine if he were like with a Matt Ryan team or a Matt Stafford team. Um, but with that in mind, you know, there to me, even though everyone has flaws, and maybe his flaw is that he'll never be that perimeter thrower because of the fact that as long as his legs work and as long as he still has that speed, it's enough of a compensating factor that they can work with it. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I think Lamar Jackson is so unique because I think the mental side, he's as good as any quarterback. Yes. He he has a great understanding of what's going on. He has natural poise, which is something a lot of quarterbacks don't. They panic when they're under pressure. Um, we've talked before. I'm not a big fan of him in terms of accuracy-wise. Right. But I think when you look at what they did there, the way they built an offense, and I'm guessing, I don't know, I don't. the only person I know in the building has never talked to me about it, is I'm guessing that the quarterback, coach, sort of offensive coordinator, Roman, and, and Lamar sort of worked together to sort yeah. of figure out, hey, these are things I'm not going to be particularly good at, and we're going to avoid trying to do that. Now, the one thing I think that he reminds me of, and, it's a totally different sport. He reminds me a lot of an Allen Iverson, not as a person. I don't yes. want anybody to do that, but as a talent, because yes. Allen was so unique and so anti a lot of things you coach, but he was such a great athlete and thought so far ahead of everybody else that he could get away with it. But when Allen Iverson's quickness became average, he was out of the game. Yeah. And my concern with Lamar is, hey, six, seven years, eight years, this may work. But at 32, he's not going to be a 4-3 rare athlete anymore. Yeah. He's going to be a guy who's probably had his legs beat up by then. And if he loses that ability to make plays running, he is going to need to become a better pocket passer. Yeah. That, to me, is going to be the great challenge. But I will say what he and Greg have going is so unique. Yeah. And it's funny, when we talk about Minshew and, and, and Stafford in terms of the differences, that's why whenever I get asked, people say arm strength is overrated. And I say, yes, you don't need elite arm strength, but you have to have a minimum. Yes. Because when you don't have a minimum, then it becomes easy for a defensive coordinator because he doesn't have to guard the whole field. Yeah. The whole key is do you have enough of an arm like Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson do 
to where you can threaten the whole field, even if you're not perfect in those areas, you can do enough with your arm to make the defense have to cover the whole field. Right. And if you do that, then it opens up a world of possibilities. And it certainly helps. What helps open up that field is the threat of their legs on top of that. 100%. Because because now you're having the deep third of the field going, we got to keep an eye on whether he's taken off to run. Because if we don't turn around quickly enough and get an eyeball on that, we won't have an angle to catch him and he's gone for 70 yards. Exactly. You add in, I think, the, the athleticism and running ability and the fact that I think both those guys are special in terms of their football intelligence, their awareness, their instincts, to where they pick up things a lot of other quarterbacks don't. They yes. innately have a feel, sort of like a Brady, sort of like a Breeze, in different areas because they're different types of quarterbacks, but they all have that innate sense, that football smarts that certain guys don't. Yes. And they feel it, they sense it, they understand where the openings are coming, and and I don't think that's a teachable trait. Yeah. Because if, if Patrick Mahomes, say, didn't have the special mental skills and the accuracy that he has, um, and say you also took away, and then he also didn't have the arm. So like you take Patrick, let's say Patrick Mahomes, actually, you keep the mental skills, you keep the accuracy, but you take away the ungodly arm and give him Minshew's arm with his athletic ability, and he would not be the player he is. Because, yeah. in my opinion, because exactly. he doesn't, because he would need then Lamar or or Deshaun's speed to be out. And he's like athletic, but he's like Andrew Luck athletic in the yeah. standpoint of like he's quick enough to get the corner on some linebackers occasionally, but he's not going to beat safeties. He's not going to beat defensive backs exactly. in any fashion. And that's the level of compensation that we're talking about. So, like, I think we're going to see people who will, when they scout in the media or anywhere where people, if they make a mistake, they'll look at the next quarterback coming down the pike and go, well, yeah, he's not super accurate and he doesn't have the strongest arm, but, you know, he can move around pretty well. And, well, well, what would you compare his athletic ability to? Andrew Luck, Matt Stafford, Patrick Mahomes. And you're like, nope, that's that's not enough. Well, just like to me, the funny one is how many people compare Russell Wilson to Lamar Jackson. And it's yeah. like, athletically, they're not in the same class. No. Andrew Luck. They're yeah. four, six, four, seven guys who are really good athletes for a quarterback, can do a lot of things. Lamar Jackson's a freak of nature. Yes. I mean, he's Michael Vick, but under control, understanding yes. what's going on around yes. him. He doesn't panic. Yes. I mean, Lamar's a rare special cat. And then you add in the rare special, just intangibles, knack, feel, teammate, all those things that make Lamar special. If a guy that's marginal in certain areas has Russell Wilson's athleticism, he'll be out of league. If yeah. a guy is marginal in some of those areas but has Lamar's athleticism, he has a chance. But yes. even that, you still got to be special yeah. in so many areas like Lamar is above the shoulders to take advantage of those skills. Because it's not the same. It's not one-to-one, the comparison I'm making in any way. But there are certain scramble drill, seeing the field, through the line of scrimmage, through traffic, through the rush, feel that he has to identify where the man is last second that Patrick Mahomes has and that Russell Wilson has in those okay. respects. And and if he had, if he was even closer to Patrick Mahomes in that ability, he would be the best player that's probably ever played the game in terms of quarterbacking. Um, that's how close of a margin that is. 
from where he is now, how special he is to where he could be. Because Mahomes, I mean, I don't know if we'll go and say Mahomes is the, you know, there are a lot of people who are already saying Mahomes is going to be the best quarterback that's ever played. He certainly has a chance to become that, you know. Um, He's a special guy. But like that, you know, it just gives you an idea when we start thinking about players where those spectrums lie and where just a tick here, a little bit more physical ability. Now you're getting into Patrick Mahomes territory or now you're getting into yep. Russell Wilson's territory. So, yeah. Well, and it does raise the, the, the bigger, I guess, question, which is, and someone brought it up on Twitter a week or two ago, and I made the statement of, I it can't, not every quarterback who is off in terms of not ideal accuracy but is mentally great like Lamar, not every one of them is going to translate to being Lamar. Yeah. Lamar is a unique guy. Yeah. I think still NFL teams are going to focus, and I think have to because so many quarterbacks are good passing the ball. I don't think you can win with a guy unless they're rare like Lamar who isn't a good passer. Yeah. You have to be a good passer to be successful as a quarterback in the NFL. And Lamar may have his faults, but in general, he never throws a ball into a bad spot in terms of decision-making. He may throw a ball that just he loses because of accuracy, but he doesn't make mental mistakes throwing the ball. He understands what's going on. He'll throw the ball away. He's rare. He's yeah. unique. I don't think there are many like him. And I think to automatically start thinking every guy that comes out that has some issues is going to be able to be like him, I think that's a huge mistake that's going to doom teams to drafting guys that really aren't ready to be professional quarterbacks. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And when you talk about, you know, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes, I can think of folks who will make, this will be a, this is something that I want to point out because I think it's worthwhile. Somebody will say, I can imagine a listener going, well, what about that interception in the Steelers game against a linebacker? And we get into the weeds on that. And I'll, and I'll give that as a good example where I would say this adds to Russ's point because there's a play where Spillane, basically picks off um, Lamar Jackson early in this game. Well, Lamar looks off the linebacker. He's he's actually trying to manipulate Spillane, and Spillane isn't buying it. So now part of that might be that Lamar may have seen, may have not have seen a kink with the coverage where maybe he didn't realize that the other linebacker was going to be on that side, and that meant that, the, that Spillane was going to stay in his little range of the zone and not get baited because he knew he had help over there. That's a possibility, but also it's just a possibility that Spillane made a really good play because Lamar did what he needed to do. It wasn't the type of situation where he was, say, Daniel Jones or, you know, where you're looking straight at the guy and staring down the route and throwing it right to the guy, you know, in that situation. And And it could also be sometimes the reality is quarterbacks sometimes are a little stubborn. Yeah. They may see a guy, fit and, you know, he's there, I can still make this throw, I'm awfully good, and you don't get to be a pro quarterback, as my cousin who works on the psychology side of things, you don't get to be a pro quarterback without having some narcissism. Right. So if you don't have the confidence to make certain throws that other people wouldn't try, you're probably not in the NFL. Yeah. So Lamar may have said, yeah, I didn't move him as much as I wanted with my eyes, but I moved him a shade. Yeah. And I'm going to fit this ball in because I'm not gifted, and that's okay. It happens to Tom Brady. It happens to Pat Mahomes. It's going to happen. That's That's right. part of being a pro quarterback. That's absolutely it, yeah. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about adjustments today, and I think that it's apropos just kind of like, 
you know, I, I recently wrote an article at Football Guys about Chase Claypool and talked about just that maybe he and Juju Smith-Schuster will be trading places a little bit in terms of not exact role on the field, but in terms of production that they're going to get. Because, you know, after watching Claypool get shut down by the Titans two weeks ago, and then really essentially getting shut down by the Ravens this week, he had two catches, I think, one for a touchdown that was on a zone play where he kind of had a two-way situation there, and then he ran to the he ran to the corner, and they they threw it right between the two defenders, and that was basically his lone big play as a as a receiver. Watching the early tape against the Giants and and the Broncos and the, and and the Eagles and a few other teams, what you noticed was when they played man to man with him. Um, they didn't have a safety over top or even shaded to his side of the numbers. They often like cheated the safety over to the opposite side of the field. Um, so he had one-on-ones there. And when he won, the defenders were either looking back to the quarterback as they were chasing Claypool and they, or they saw Claypool have to make a tight sideline catch and they didn't get physical with them. They were like, he's not going to catch it. Like he's, I, I'm not, you know, they didn't think of him like, you know, if the if DeAndre Hopkins was like about to catch a tight sideline target, they're going to interfere with him because the yeah. likelihood is that he's going to make that play if I don't, even if it looks like he's threading the eye of the needle. Clay, Chase Claypool, the rookie, you could just see the body language, which was like, let's, I, I don't, I don't even believe he's going to even get this, and he comes down and catches him, you know. And then in zone, you watch the zone and the linebackers who may should be paying attention to Claypool cheat over to Juju Smith-Schuster or Deontay Johnson or Eric Ebron. They're all like cheating over to the known quantity and they're leaving Claypool wide open. And then, and then you're seeing this to the effect where like against the Eagles late in the game, there's a safety who cheats over to... Um, to Smith-Schuster or Deontay Johnson in that triangle. And now the middle linebackers basically um, allowing Juju Smith, I mean, uh, allowing Claypool to go up the seam for a big score. And everybody's like, well, why wouldn't they do a one-on-one with him? Because, well, you know, again, the safety should have been there, but he cheated to the known quantity. Fast forward to the Titans game, to the Ravens game. As soon as Claypool releases from his route and zone, the linebacker's all over him. The Another player's buzzing over to him. They're getting their hands on him. When he gets to the sideline and the ball's up in the air, they're interfering with him. I mean, it's like completely different scenario. So, you know, we're looking at this week seven, week eight. So what happens, you know, when you're talking about from an NFL perspective of scouting players, it, it seems like the NFL takes four to five weeks to accumulate tape. And then, then the coaches look at that in the aggregate and say, okay, here's our data. Here's our game plan. Here's how we're going to prioritize stopping them. And it seems like either players, it, three things happen. Either it's a speed bump for the great, the excellent players. And it's like, yeah, one, two week <laughs> adjustment and we're good. Or they become matchup plays where it's like some defenses can stop them. Others don't have the personnel or maybe the coaching staff to figure out certain things. And so they're good on some weeks and bad on other weeks for the rest of the season. And then they're the guys that just get completely stopped and they need a full off season to address their flaws enough to be able to come back and, and handle what they couldn't do in, as their rookies. So tell us about that process for the NFL. 
Well, Claypool's a great example because if you, if you think about it, he's firstly, he's a freak of nature. I mean, he's a massive human being who's so much faster than most people his size that I think, first off, a lot of D coordinators early in the season said, yeah, he's 6'4", 6'5", 225, 230. We don't have to worry about over-the-top protection. We don't have to worry about that because he's not going to run by anybody. And quickly, that was disproven. And then the other area where it really is sort of he, gave, he got a benefit was, and you see this because you watch tons of college tape too, is there's not a lot of press in college. Everybody gets an easy release. Well, nobody jumped in his face in college. So you don't know when you're a defensive coordinator in the NFL that he's a massive human being. Maybe we should jump in his face and slow him down because you don't know a lot about him. So all of a sudden, he's killing people, and once or twice someone gets in his face off the line, and he's a different guy. And it's not to say he won't become good, but he's a different guy. And then all of a sudden, teams see that, and instantly they're like, yep, we got to get in his face. And Baltimore's the king of that. They love getting their guys up and jolting you and shoving you to the sideline. So, yeah, teams are smart, and especially with a team like that where you have Smith-Schuster, who's an established guy. Big Ben loves going to guys he's comfortable with, as he's shown throughout his career. But he's no dummy. Big Ben's an all-pro and been highly successful for a long time. He gets a line of scrimmage, and he's looking and saying, wait a second, my established guy is where they're tilting the coverage, and this gigantic human being who can run by anybody because he's been practicing with them is left over here with no over-the-top or they're going to leave him with an easy release and I can just toss a quick little back shoulder throw, yeah, I'm going to go to the Giant. And he starts doing that, and all of a sudden, D coordinators start getting the printouts, and they start saying, hey, wait, this big, huge kid that we're going against this week that they haven't watched film on, but they're seeing the numbers saying, well, if we don't get in his face early, or if we don't protect over the top, we're going to get killed. we got to start doing these things. And this is where you really find out, A, which kids are smart, and B, more importantly, which kids work. A lot of guys are smart enough, they understand, they get told by the coaches, this is what you have to improve upon. That's all well and good if you do it. If you don't do it, you'll be the same guy you are for the rest of your career. If you do do it, and I'm pretty sure Claypool will, because all the research I did on him coming out of school, because he is Canadian, told me that this kid is the type of kid who's going to do every single thing in his power to become a good player. So he's going to work on these little details, so that as they continue to press him and roll the coverage to him, he's going to figure out how to be more effective. But you really do see, just like we were talking about with quarterbacks, with any position, but receiver's a real good one, because if you take away one area and a receiver doesn't make the effort to improve, he can literally be gone from the NFL quickly. If you look around the NFL over the past 15 years, how many guys had 30 or 40 balls as a rookie? And within three years, they were washed out of the league. Yeah, And that happens all the time because they figure out, okay, the one thing he can do is run stops. Okay, so he runs stops, catches a lot of them, and he's good at it. Well, don't let him do it anymore. Get in his face, make him get behind you. All of a sudden, that guy can't do it, and he's gone from football. Claypool, it's going to take him a while because, like we talked about, he rarely got jumped in college and pressed, and now he's just getting his first sort of real exposure on a regular basis. I would bet for the next month, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. There's yeah. going to be quarters of games where he's a non-factor because teams are punching him in the face, slowing his release. They're squeezing him to the sideline. They have a guy over the top. But I would say as the year goes on, and especially next year, not only are the Steelers excellent at drafting receivers, but they're also excellent, excellent at teaching. Because if you look at how many of their receivers came in, and it wasn't always their rookie year they excelled. It was their third, fourth year where they blossomed. 
Claypool is going to develop. He's going to improve upon the things he has to do. Footwork off the line of scrimmage, hand used to get free, understanding where to slow down, how to get away from that over-the-top coverage. He's going to be fine with that. I just think it's you have to understand as a scout and as a coach, figure out which players have the innate tools, learning-wise, intangibles-wise, instincts-wise, to be able to adjust when teams take away the certain things they're good at and make them become a complete receiver yeah. or complete whatever. Yeah, and and I think that compensating factor also takes into play with receivers at times too, but, it, but the extreme has to be just as extreme as what we talk about with Lamar Jackson because you look at a guy like DK Metcalf and, you know, Metcalf's a young guy. He's probably going to continue to improve as well. But, you know... This also goes to the combine and metrics because one of the points that, I, that I've made recently was the idea that, you know, I think people, the, they, in our society today, we tend to be either or with so many things to a fault. And it's no different with when it comes to sports and how we look at football analysis. So you get media analysts who look at the combine and either they're, there's, it's a much bigger minority now, but it's a big, a small minority or a smaller minority. It's a much smaller minority now that's like, ah, the combine doesn't mean anything. You know, those metrics don't mean nothing. It's the underwear Olympics, whatever, you know. But now we have a big minority of people who are on the extreme of the, the numbers are what matter so much, matter more than what's the tape. Or what happens is there's this kind of in-between area that I want to focus on, which is the numbers matter, but we don't know how to analyze those numbers with the tape well enough to not like overreact. And the big overreaction with DK Metcalf was his shuttle time was slow. He can't change direction well. And it's like, he's not, you know, he could be a bust because of that because he's really fast in a straight line, but ask him to change direction. And part of it's the fit with Seattle. He runs a lot of vertical routes. You can have him run a lot of crossing routes, run a lot of deep crossers, run over routes. But he runs comebacks and he runs double moves and, you know, does more than the fade. And But the thing is, is that with a guy like Metcalf, even though he has a guy like, say like this week, Jason Verrett's covering, one of the better cornerbacks in the NFL after now that he's come back and got back together physically, he's running comebacks on Verrett. Well, the reason he is is because he's so damn fast and he's so physical and strong. He's like David Boston without the roids, you know, and it's and he's able to even if he has to change direction with extra steps with his footwork, the fear of God he puts on you that you can't get physical with him one on one down the field means that a guy like Verrett has to play off of him. Because, yeah, he has to respect it. Yeah. He has to respect it, even if even if Metcalf is like, I'm going to do a tap dance, you know, a, a long tap dance routine on this comeback break, you know, compared to what the footwork should be. Verrett's too far off to do anything because if he doesn't, yeah, like you said, the respect there. And you look at Metcalf and you see his hands. And if you ever, you watch his hands on tape in terms of like when not only are they violent, but they're sudden, like... I don't in the at the combine they don't you know they don't do any type of there's no like exercise or drill that like studies hand speed and like bat speed in terms of how you hit people and how yep. you use your hands there. Now scouts are studying that when they're looking at workouts and they're going, this guy's like 
this guy could be a boxer and like the way that he the way he throws his hands he's going to knock a db off balance and and a big db off balance with those hands he he doesn't need his feet as much as some other guys need his feet and no I, question. yeah so when you look at him that's that's an example of a guy who can have compensatory factors to succeed oh there's no question and I, and i will say the one thing that's important to note is because I know the media has made a huge deal out of, oh, his numbers were, his, his three-cone and his short shuttle were bad, and how could he slip to the second round? And what I've tried to explain to people over and over and over, but in 140 characters, it's very difficult. <laughs> the primary reason he went in the second round was not his short shuttle or his three-cone, but it is due to analytics. And that is the fact that when you plug in the numbers of less than one full season of starting games in college, less than a certain number of yards, and less than a certain number of catches in his career. The history says, I think there's one guy who's ever become a productive starter in NFL history with those three numbers. So when teams see those numbers, they say, oh my God, I can't use a first-round pick on a player that basically is going to fail. Right. That's what terrifies teams because analytics do play a role they look at historical production ratios and say, okay, just like one-year starting quarterbacks, there ain't many of them that have ever made it. Just like receivers in college that have never started more games than in one season. Yeah. Those guys petrify NFL teams. And guys I think have under, I think it's 600 or 800 career yards in college and under 60 catches or whatever the numbers are, there's almost no history of success. So yeah. teams get petrified that this one guy is all of a sudden going to outperform all the other guys that had those same metrics? Yeah. So it, 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 he's a very unique guy, and I think Seattle also, they do a great job, both John and Pete, of they get to know the kid. And Pete is also one of the rare guys who can, even though he's the second oldest or oldest coach in the NFL, he relates to 20 years. Yeah. And I think he understood that even though DK had been hurt, if he stayed healthy, this kid would do everything humanly possible to become a good player. Yeah. And I think that was part of why they were willing to roll the dice on him. And he's obviously become a very good player. But at the same time, let's not let's not make the assumption that he's catching 80 balls for 1,500 yards a year. Right. He's not that guy yet. And part of that, I think, is due to plan is I think they are concerned that if they do pump him 80 or 90 catches a year, he may break. Yeah. And I think they're trying to be cautious. And I think there's a good there's a good point to that because you look at him and you wonder if he'll just literally run out of his uh, his ankle or his yeah. calf, you, you <laughs> know? Yeah. And so there is that to it, and I think that's an astute point. And but I love the fact too what that what you brought up too about the analytics is th- there's smart analytics, there's wise analytics, and wise application of it. This is an example of a wise application of it. We're not talking about DK Metcalf not being drafted because of these things. We're talking about him not being a first-round pick, which is a vast difference than, exactly. than to like early-day analytics where it was like, well, some consultants would come in and say, well, if he's not 6'2 and 210 pounds, then he shouldn't even be on our board. And then you're yeah. like, okay, wait a minute. You know, you've just disqualified a whole pool of really good players before you've even like understood why those numbers have a correlation on some level, but not the level you think they do, you know? No, and that, and, and the point I, I think that that makes, and I think you and I, I think we think a lot alike in this, is 
if you're a football guy who watches film and, and says, screw analytics, you're going to fail, especially right. in today's world because so many teams can be more efficient. And if you're on the other end who believes analytics solve all the world problems and you don't have to watch any film and you can just do it off that, you're a moron too. Right. <laughs> the answer is, can you watch film, identify good players, and use analytics to then help you figure out which players don't fit, which players don't fit what you guys are going to do, which players historically fail? How can you become more efficient and better yeah. at drafting and coaching players using as many things as you can? Not just analytics, but it's emotional intelligence tests. It's putting players through private individual workouts, not worrying about the testing numbers, but putting through drills that you as a team are going to ask them to do on the field. All of these things matter. It's not just film. It's not just numbers in a computer. If you aren't willing to be holistic and look at everything, you're probably not going to be able to compete with teams like Seattle, with teams like Pittsburgh that do a little bit of everything and are always trying to get better and better and more efficient as opposed to a lot of teams that don't do that. Yeah, it's craft. All the, It's not science. It's not art. It's craft. It's both. Exactly. And speaking of craft, let's end the show with just some guys that we've been watching as we've been applying our craft to – so what's going on? Who's somebody that's really caught your eye lately? You know, the one guy this year that has jumped out, um, and it's partly me because I've been focusing so many on, so much on Canadian guys the last year that when I threw on the film this year to watch Trevor Lawrence and Greg Clemson, <laughs> they have a receiver named Amari Rogers, number three. And I don't mm-hmm. know if he's a receiver or a running back or a returner. <laughs> All I know is if I'm an NFL team, I want this guy. This is the guy that I think you can line up all over the field. You can put him outside. You can put him in the slot. I'd even use him as a tailback in certain alignments to get him the ball. I'd let him return. He is unique. Now, does he drop a ball occasionally? 100%. And it drives me batty that he does. But I think this kid is natural when he has the ball in his hands. He's got balance. He has the body of a running back below the waist. Takes hits, keeps his feet. He has a feel for what's going on. This is a kid that I look at and say, wow, if I have a team with a creative offensive coordinator, he could be a really valuable weapon because he can go everywhere. And I like this kid a lot. Didn't know much about him until I started watching that film. And, oh, I'm really excited to see how he does on Sunday. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I've i seen him myself, and, and I think the way you described him is perfect to a T. I'll just add that when I was on Ross Tucker shows last year, we were talking about players for the national championship game, and I kept bringing up Amari Rodgers. He goes, you seem to really like this kid. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. Well, Russ just told you. So That's the players. We both seem to like them. Exactly. There you go. And and I think for me, the player that, that's caught my eye is Kyle Pitts, the tight end out of oh, um, no out of Florida. You know, watched him against Old Miss this week this past week. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about him is he really is an advanced receiver for his age right now. And he has the frame to add weight in his core to develop into being a good blocker. And I think the techniques for a blocker, there's a lot there to like. Like he understands how to uppercut punch and roll through his hips when he when he hits. Does he overextend a lot? Yeah, because he's 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 long and lean and he's facing bigger guys and he's trying to throw all his weight into, into impact early on. So he's getting ripped around and thrown down to the ground and things like that. But when he faces guys that are within his weight class, he seems to be pretty good. He moves his feet. He chops his feet. He can send guys out, 
where he can reach block or cut somebody off a little bit. And he doesn't do too bad there. But where he shines is, is, is as a receiver. Man, you watch this guy, and he has a number of different moves he uses well with his hands. He can use the throw-by and the arm-over combination. He can... You know, he knows how to hip shift and slow down against off coverage when he has to kind of throw the off-speed pitch up the seam to bait the guy and then get there. He knows how to jump back and win the ball and use his hands. And he extends his hands so well to to catch the ball, whether it's behind him or he has to come back to it. Um, he can take contact. He can pull down and win it. And he has the speed. I mean, he has the speed. Oh, yeah. he gets He gets by you. And, you know, all he needs is he can use a little bit of that stiff arm. And then if he makes contact with you with that as he's passing you by, you're not catching him for a while. And so he's a fantastic prospect. He is. And, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me, and I don't remember which game it was that I saw him, was unlike a lot of guys who every time they put their hands out, it looks the same. When he goes to catch the ball, if a defender reaches in or already has an arm up, he can manipulate his arms around, over, and that's a rare skill. Yeah. Most guys coming out of college have one way of going up to catch the ball. I was really impressed, and it may have been the first or second game of the year, because there was one play where the ball was clearly not in a place where he was going to have an easy way to catch it because the defender had his arms there, and he literally twisted his body and reached back, or putting his hands in front of the defender's hands to catch it and secure it before he pulled it into his frame. So. He's got some unique... It was up the seam, right? Yes, up the seam. Ole exactly. Miss. That's, I'm actually going to be showing that that play this week on my YouTube channel. So that's exactly it. Yeah. He's really unique in that because most guys in college, they catch it one way. They're either catching it over the shoulder or they're reaching back, but he can manipulate. He can move his arms, catch it with guys reaching in front of him. He's got a ton of upside. I, I just... Is he a little stiff? Yeah, he's a little bit stiff, but you know what? So is Travis Kelsey. He's not the super flexible guy. When I'm asking a 230, 40, 50 pound tight end to outrun linebackers and make plays down the field, I'm not overly worried. This kid's going to be a really good tight end in the NFL. And I just, I think a creative team, oh, he's going to be fun, fun to watch in the NFL. Yeah. And speaking of tight ends before we leave, because we talked about a tight end last year the first time, Albert O. And, you know, Drew Locke basically has lobbied for him. And now with the, uh, when the game's in the balance, who do they go to, you know? Yeah, it's a comfort level thing. You yeah. know the guy's talented, and you know what you've done with him in the past. I just think if you're going to take a gamble on a kid that's got some motivational issues, you try to get him with a guy who motivated him previously. Yeah, yeah, the, the common sense. Sometimes, yeah. you know, hopefully we'll we'll see a lot more common sense over the coming months, you know, and, and we'll get a chance to try and impart as much of it as we can, at least in the football sphere. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and this was a blast. As always, Russ, you, you know, you can catch Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. Um, you, you know, you can find me at Matt Waldman. And, you know, you can subscribe to this show um, on YouTube. Uh, you can subscribe to, actually, on Amazon, Spotify, iTunes. Um, if, I don't think Google plays out now at this point. I think they're gone. But yeah, um, they are, they are gone. Yeah. Podbean, all the places, pretty much. It's it, I, I try and keep up with them. I just can't even remember them. I'm always got them written down. <laughs> so you know that's what happens. But thanks again for listening, folks. And you know, please rate and review and give us a follow. And you guys enjoy your week.